Gospel reading comes from the Gospel according to Matthew, Mount Matthew, Luke. In the fourth chapter, it is the familiar story that often kicks off Lent as we find Jesus in the wilderness. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing at all during those days, and when they were over, he was famished. The devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. Jesus answered him, it is written, one does not live by bread alone. Then the devil led him up and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to him, To you I will give their glory and all this authority, for it has been given over to me, and I give it to anyone I please. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, if you're the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to protect you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is said, do not put put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished every test, he departed from him until an opportune time. The word of the Lord. Join me in a prayer. As we begin this Lent together, O God, we ask that it be a season of teaching teaches us and reminds us of a deeper faith than the one we often have, deeper relationships than we are often willing to share, deeper truths of who you are and who you call us to be. As we walk into the wilderness with Christ, Be with us. Speak to us. Renew us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I recently ran across a conversation in an article about between a mom and her four-year-old son. <clears throat> and in it, she says, we were on our way home from church, and my son looked up and said, Mom, what do you know about the devil? To which I struggled to respond. I didn't quite know what to say. I mean, I knew the story from church that morning was the one we just read a moment ago on Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. So we didn't, But how do you answer a question like, I mean, where do you even start with something like that? So, in a moment of intelligence... The mom says, I passed the question back on to him. Well, what do you know about the devil? Well, he said, 
um, the devil talked to Jesus, and the devil was mean. And then he kept going. He went on to say, so if you were, if we were in a grocery store, and you were on one row, and I was on another row, and on my row, there was candy. The devil would say, you should take some. And immediately the mom shares in sharing this conversation that I kind of began to think that maybe my four-year-old in some way that he's able to grasp it gets some sense of what temptation kind of feels like, you know, that it involves those things that we think are essential to our own survival or, or those things that we desperately think we want but don't really need, that he somehow got it even a little bit. And so I, I went with that line of thinking. I said, okay, so if we were in a grocery store and I was on one row and you were on another row and on your row there's candy and the devil says to you, take some, what would you say back? Oh, my little boy said with just an eager, bright look, I know exactly what I would say. I would say thank you. <laughs> now, now, we laugh at that, but I freely admit to you that that story seems to resonate more closely to our actual experience in life than the one we just read a moment ago about Jesus being tempted by the devil, I mean, in the wilderness, in his experience. I mean, I, mean, I read that, and, and I can relate a little more closely to a kid trying to decide if they should take candy or not than I can being offered entire kingdoms. I mean, it's just not even in the same ballpark. It's not even the same realm. I get the struggle of the little things. Don't quite understand, though, exactly what's going on in the temptation that Jesus faces. It's so foreign. Just don't quite get it. And maybe that is the point. Perhaps that's part of the point of the story. That the story isn't there to show us that we will have the same wilderness experience that Jesus has. After all, that one is His and His alone, uniquely His. Ours is different. As Barbara Brown Taylor aptly points out, we're not going to get the Son of God test. We're more likely to get the regular, old, everyday Adam and Eve test, which means that the devil won't need a whole lot more than an all-you-can-eat buffet and a tax refund to turn our heads. Our wilderness is uniquely ours, uniquely yours. And we face wilderness in life Quite often. I'll never forget when our kids were young. I'm going to apologize to this section up here. I'm not going to tell you which one to protect the innocent. But I remember when they were young and 
one of them decided that it was finally time to get rid of the pacifier. It's gotten too big for pacifier. Just, it's time. But instead of being smart and, you know, tucking it away in a safe place somewhere in the house, you know, we took all the pacifiers, instead of tucking them away where we could reach them in case the situation became dire, we instead put them in an envelope and we sent them away in the mail. All of a sudden, no more pacifiers. Gone completely. Now, let me tell you, the first few nights were pretty rough. <laughs> but they passed. And I remember a brief conversation. It must have been a week, maybe two weeks later. And I asked my daughter, I said, asked her how she was doing. I, I said, do you miss it? And she quietly nods. Do you want it back? Yeah. But I don't think I need it, Dad. One of the things that the wilderness can teach us, no matter how large or how small that wilderness experience may be, is that the very things we think are essential to our survival, the very thing we want the most, we realize that we don't really need. Barbara Brown Taylor nails it again. She says, our minds are geniuses at convincing us that losing our pacifier is going to kill us. But it is almost never true. Almost never true. We each have our own wilderness. And even though it's there to teach us and, and we bring something from it, we, we often ha still have that look on our faces, right? That, that look, that expression that speaks of experiencing some deep loss in our life that's very real, a very real, real experience of wilderness or something that we've given up that was highly important, that we've had to let go, that we know is no longer good for us. That look. I see it on people's faces quite often. The most recent, I have to say, is last Wednesday during our Ash Wednesday service in the evening. All the people coming down this aisle to have ashes placed on their forehead and to be reminded in no small way that you're not going to get out of this life alive. Now, some come forward with just an ordinary look from an ordinary day. It's just a regular old deal, getting some ashes. Good. But every now and then, in the faces I saw, one would come forward with the kind of expression that seems to show that they're carrying their entire life like an overcoat, all weighed down from the size of it. Have that look that seems to say, I miss my pacifier. 
I miss it. We all get that look on occasion. Our wilderness is uniquely ours. I can no longer share what that person's wilderness may be like no more than I can share what yours is like, but I know we each have one, and I know like Jesus in the story, it is uniquely ours, and ours alone. A young priest tells the story about the impact his grandfather has on his own, had on his own life. He writes about his grandfather and he says, my grandfather, like many grandfathers of my own generation, was born a child of the Depression and served valiantly in World War II. And then after the war, returned home and, and met the woman who would become his wife and together they would have three daughters, one of which obviously was my mother, he said. And he was a quiet man, my grandfather, a, a hard worker, a successful business owner. One might say that he had everything he was supposed to have. Life was good. But one day his oldest daughter was in a car with her friends, they were teenagers, and the driver lost control. Car turned over. She didn't make it. And the way my mom used to talk about that is that she said, Granddad really didn't say much about that day. He just got a little more quiet, worked a little harder. So as I got older, he said, as I began to know that I was going into the priesthood, I was interested in, in the effects life have on people, and I, I was curious. I wanted to know. I finally got up the nerve to ask him about it, to ask him about that experience and, and what it did to him and what it did to the family. And, and when I asked him, he became extremely quiet for a good little while. And then he looked at me. It was the worst experience my entire life, he said, made me question everything. He went on to talk about how he began to question God. He stopped wanting to go to church. He just questioned the whole thing. He was mad, angry at God for taking away his little girl. He was in the wilderness. But then something happened. Something changed inside him. As he tells it, he began to realize that all along he'd simply been living a shallow faith because he thought he understood how life is supposed to work, that if you work hard, if you're responsible, if you're a good person, if you're relatively healthy with what you do, then, then you can expect good things in return. He began to realize that all he was doing was cutting a deal with God. It took him a long time. But he finally realized that he had a choice. 
If the wilderness taught him anything, it was that it had that he had a choice to make. That he could remain angry for the rest of his life. Or, and ignore God's presence in his life. Or, he could accept the fact that God was there. That God was always there. And he could choose to trust the presence of God in his life as all that he really needs. He chose to trust that day. We each have our own wilderness, don't we? One of the reasons perhaps we struggle with understanding what's going on with Jesus' wilderness experience is because it's not ours, it's His. We're not going to get the Son of God test. We're going to get the regular old Adam and Eve test. And yet there are times when our wilderness hits us in the very center of who we are, makes us rethink our entire understanding and belief of what life is all about, the wilderness can do that, but each of our wilderness experiences are our own. I can no longer tell you what yours is, then you can tell me what mine is. But we can be there for one another. In fact, presence is the great promise in this story that often gets overlooked. We read this story and we kind of make this assumption that Jesus is out there all by himself, but he's not. Luke makes sure to remind us more than once, led by the Spirit, Luke says, he went into the wilderness, filled with the Holy Spirit, not just in a moment, but from start to finish, from top to bottom, throughout the whole of this story. Matthew and Mark add to that at the end that the angels attended to him. Jesus is never alone, not once, not ever. The great lesson of this story is not that we need to somehow find a way to puff ourselves up and resist the temptations in our lives, but instead to learn what Eugene Peterson calls the long obedience, to learn to trust in the one who's been there with us from the very beginning. Jesus shows us in this story that this is, a fa in fact, a God we can trust. One who stands right there by our side. A God who is always there. Filled by the Spirit is, in fact, the only way we will make it through this life. Now, what would you say to that, you ask? Oh, I know what I would say. I would say, thank you. Thank you. Amen.